0: Hello, welcome to Relatable. Thank you for listening and for your continued support. In this next episode, I speak with Doug Schneider, who just started his third career uh, as a high school history teacher. Previously, he spent time in the Coast Guard and also in the private sector. We go deep on his experience in the military and his second career that was focused on the intersection of both public policy and the shipping industry. Through our discussion, we talk about his experiences and we get wonderful advice from each stage of his career to include lessons learned, knowing when to change careers, and what skills he believes positions people for success. Enjoy this episode. Uh, We are so thankful that you agreed to talk with us and really turned it around on such short notice.
1: Well, the timing is perfect because starting Monday, one week from today, um, I will be in the vortex of full-time teaching, Um, and I still honestly have no idea how I'm going to make it to next Monday. I don't have any lesson plans ready, but I've been told by my colleagues to just... (laughs) Be calm, it will all be okay. We do everything as a team. Right. um, And there are people with far more experience than I have. So I'm just trying to keep it calm, but I'm thrilled to see the kids. But I think after next Monday, it's gonna gonna be real.
0: Yeah, it'll (laughs) be. And remind me what grade you're teaching.
1: um, I'm teaching high school AP, US history and honors us history um at oakton high school and that that typically means all 11th graders Mm -hmm. although there'll be probably you know a couple of 12th graders mixed in
0: right right well congratulations and maybe this is a great place for us to start because this is a new job for you and uh you know our good friend paul suggested that we talk and told us that you've had this amazing career and life of twists and turns, and so have found yourself in this new opportunity, I think based on a need to um, sort of seek fulfillment in what you're doing. So I would love to hear about how you landed here and what prompted this decision, and also what was required for you to to make the move so I think that that would be interesting too
1: I'm Uh, happy to talk about that I'm sure some of your listeners may have had at one point in their lives or may even now have an interest or a curiosity about becoming a teacher sure Um, absolutely for me my mom was a teacher and I grew up with the rhythm of being the son of a teacher which means the cycle of her going to school and coming home and working on papers and you know, invariably complaining about being a teacher, but loving it every minute that she did it was part of my my, uh, my makeup. And I loved to sit with her and grade papers with her. And I felt like I was smarter than I was because I could grade her students' papers when right. they were high school kids. And so it's always been something that uh, was of interest. And whenever I would visit her in school, I could not be more proud to see her and particularly to see the way the students lit up around her and the way she lit up around them. I just felt super energized in a school environment. And I also felt energized in the school environment as a student myself. Ah. Um, not that I've always uh, adored school, but I generally did enjoy school and I love the social component of it and um, I just think it's a, it's a fantastic environment for people to be vulnerable and learn and make friendships and interact with people that really care about them so for me it's always been something on my life list to to sort of do at some point Mm -hmm. um and after being very very lucky and very grateful to have served you know in the united states Mm -hmm. coast guard and then to leave that stay in it as a reserve officer and enter the private sector in the shipping industry and get to do work that was relevant to the maritime experiences that i had as a coast guard officer and then do that for almost 20 years and then sort of reach a point where i felt like i needed to i could do something more fulfilling both for me and for the people i'm around by trying something new and i felt like it was a good time to try it not that I wasn't happy or comfortable um, in the work I was doing, but I just felt like there was a greater calling. And so I, I started talking to my wife about this idea and, and noting that this idea was going to reduce my pay by, I don't know, what not an order of magnitude, but a lot right um right. you know we all know that teachers don't get paid particularly well and I was being paid reasonably well in the you know in the shipping industry not absurdly well but well and right. so to take a cut like that and live in Arlington where it's expensive and have two kids in school and you know we, we had to do a little bit of finance uh, you know but now financial we analysis. call it
0: we call it the shell game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like that. In
0: our house, <laughs> it's like we should, oh, we'll just pull it, here, we'll pull it from here. We'll pull it from there. Her
1: that we that we actually have the money to buy something <laughs> that we don't have the money to buy. So, which I do all the time. Um, yeah. But we realized that we could swing it. We're but um, you know, it's um, my wife is a retired Coast Guard officer, and I'm a retired Coast Guard officer. So we we will have retirement. She gets retirement pay. I will get full retirement when I hit 60 Mm -hmm. which is sadly only a decade away Um, and so I just we just sort of decided to do it yeah and um, and then the question becomes how do you become a teacher there are programs for veterans to become teachers um, but those are typically targeting younger people that don't have the kind of professional experience that I have I didn't necessarily want to go back and do another master's program and then have to have to have to be a student teacher for a year. So there are career switcher programs, I think in most states, but in Virginia, there are a couple of them. And I chose the Educate VA program, which is very intensive. Uh, It's about a six or seven month program in the coursework. Um, I wrote over 400 pages in that period. And I basically didn't Spend much time with my family from August until December when it was done. Yeah, it was an intense. It was far more intense than my grad school program, but it was excellent. It was really well done, and that's the you know that's how you're going to become a teacher. It's a gauntlet to go through that process, and it was really really hard. But I feel I felt prepared when I went to the interview round right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. you know, I was excited, I was motivated, I was ready, I gave notice to my company, I said, I'm leaving, I love oh, you guys, but it's time to go, time for me to do something new, uh, and and then I ventured out to try to get a job, I went to a job fair, it went great, and then COVID literally sort of struck the following week, and the schools just stopped, they didn't know what they wanted, they had no clue what their needs were, yeah. they didn't know whether they were going to go virtual, they didn't know what their you know their personnel complement was going to look like the next year um and everything just sort of slammed to a halt and fairly quickly thereafter i realized it was probably not a good idea to try to pursue that my company was very nervous about trying to find a replacement during that environment and so we sort of came together and said why don't we just put this on hold for a year and that's what we did. So my my uh, my boss, uh, our president, at the World Shipping Council was wonderful, and we had a couple frank discussions. And I stuck around for a year, and I'm so glad it worked out that way because then that facilitated me helping my company, a small group that represents the entire container shipping industry globally, find somebody as my successor that was a good fit. And then and then we had the time to bring that person in. And, and help them get up to speed while I was still there. Um, and, and so that addressed some of my feelings of anxiety about sort of leaving my colleagues behind the right. way that wasn't, um, that wasn't helpful to them because we're such a small group and there's just so much going on. So.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your career in the military? Did you join the Coast Guard right out of high school or college? Tell me a little bit about that transition. And and did you have family that had also served? And so was that modeled for you? And yeah, talk a bit yeah. about um, that.
1: So my dad, was, he went to Officer Candidate School after being at Miami of Ohio. And that was during Vietnam. And, and then he served in the, in the United States Army infantry for a long time. Thankfully, he did not go to Vietnam. He was ordered to go. And then his orders were stopped because he had he he was a finance specialist and so my mom always used to tell me that had he gone i probably wouldn't have been born um because he probably would have died he was the second lieutenant and they were dying very very rapidly over in vietnam right commanders so um i was born but i always had a fascination with the military Partly from looking at pictures of my dad, hmm. from talking to my grandfather, who was a, who was a just a fanatic about military history and Civil War history, and so I just sort of grew up uh, idolizing Civil War generals. And so I said, I'm going to, you know, at a young age, I said, I'm going to go to West Point. Mm-hmm. And and yet I grew up on the water. I was boating all the time. I was I grew started sailing when I was probably five. I was always on the water. I just loved the ocean and the water, and as I matured, I started to learn about alternatives to being an Army officer, and I thought about the Naval Academy, Mm -hmm. and then I I literally did some research. I went to a place called the Library. (laughs) Uh, Could you spell that, please? (laughs) (laughs) L i b r a r y. Thank you. Um, you. I went to one, and (laughs) and I remember vividly, and I was doing research on service academies, and it's that at that point that i learned about the united states coast guard academy mm-hmm. uh, it's not particularly well known relative to the naval academy in west point or the air force academy and so but when i read about it i was intrigued by the size it was about a quarter of the size the attrition rate was really really high and for whatever reason i thought that was cool and there was a picture of the Coast Guard Cutter Eagle, which is a tall ship, which was a German war prize that we got after World War II. So I began began to get fascinated with either the Naval Academy or the Coast Guard Academy. And then that summer, I was a freshman in high school at that point. That summer, my mom took me on a driving tour uh, and my brother, who had no interest in, in the military, and we went to the Naval Academy, we went to West Point, we went to the Coast Guard Academy. And frankly, I was all in on Coast Guard at that point.
0: And where is, is that?
1: Unique. It's in New London, Connecticut.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So mm-hmm. um, that's pretty unique because you typically find people that just don't know that much about it, and they apply because it's free. Um, mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they go, and then they right. realize the Coast Guard's a really wonderful service, and you're doing active missions. So anyway, fast forward, I I got in. I, I was able to, you know, you never know if you're going to into a place like that, but I got in, mm-hmm. I got an appointment and um, I accepted it immediately. I then went and I was going to be a flag officer. I was going to be an admiral. I was going to stay in the Coast Guard and I was going to command ships and I was going to, it was going to be my life career and I'd still be in the Coast Guard today, um, but I went to the academy and I, I it, it's a challenging place to go to school. It's not a normal college in the environment, but yeah. I had, a—I did well. Um, And right before I graduated, I met my wife, who was a class, one class behind me, class of 1994. And my focus thereafter sort of been, how do we get Mm co-located? So I went to sea for two years. When you come out of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, you go to sea for two years. That's a standard thing. If you're at the Naval Academy and you want to be an attorney, you might go to law school. If you want to be a pilot, you might go to flight school. If you want to be a deck watch officer, you might go to sea. But out of the coast guard academy everybody goes to sea for two years it's sort of a it's a baseline tour um and then after that you can be a pilot or a lawyer or whatever else you want to be uh, and i think it's a good thing but uh, my goal was to both was to both enjoy that work but also try to become relatively geographically stable and be able to spend time with my wife because that you know two military careers do not facilitate uh, yeah. Time together, right, right. Right. So she graduated. She went to Florida as well, but she was about four hours away from me. And I think the, in our ships, the ships that we were assigned to were at sea at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we would we would literally go for two months and not speak a word. That's so crazy. Not a word. Yeah. Because I was at sea and she was at sea, and then I would come back, and then her ship would come back, and I'd try to meet her ship when it came in. And then we get about three weeks together on the weekends only because we right. worked during the week. So I think my, the first year of our marriage, we saw each other about 16 days. And we we literally swore that we weren't gonna do anything that was gonna cause us to ever be apart. And we stuck to it. Um, and the result of that is that it affects your career. Uh-huh. I chose not to go back to see for my second tour, which would have been the right thing to do to get command of a patrol boat. But I said, I don't want to do that because I want to try to stay married, frankly. Um, <laughs> and she did the same thing. Uh, she had an yeah. opportunity to go back to sea. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's sort of how our career pro- careers progressed. I was at sea for two years. I went to a tactical law enforcement team where I did some really, really amazing and cool stuff. Mm-hmm like drive speedboats after drug runners, flying in helicopters in the Bahamas and and the Caymans, um, off of a Navy ship to take over a boarding of a giant cargo ship uh, that's suspected of having drugs on board, being deployed out to a ship that had stowaways on board and the stowaways took the captain hostage. I got to do all that stuff and it was amazing. And I did that for three years. And I also got to teach. Mm -hmm. So I got to teach law enforcement to Coast Guard men and women that were actively doing that work around uh, the Southeast United States. And so that was my first exposure to teaching. And I really, really loved it.
0: Let me ask you one quick question that is, um, it's backtracking a little bit, but I I am interested um, from an academy perspective, maybe two things. One in terms of the academy, you talked about the attrition and I, you know, I don't know if you can liken it to other academies or if you have perspective, but for people that may be considering that, that are a bit younger and they're in that, yeah. that, that stage where they're trying to assess that, what would you say was the most difficult or maybe two or three things that were really difficult about being in the academy and why you think the attrition's high and then conversely, what did you love about it or that was a surprise that you found to be you know, something that was life-shaping and positive for you? Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information.
1: So, as I mentioned, I went into it with my eyes wide open. I knew what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. When I went to the, the the summer of your junior year before you, you know, become a senior in high school, there's a program, and I think all of the academies have a similar program. Yeah. But the, the Coast Guard Academy has a program called the Academy Introduction Mission, and it stimulates the first summer, which is the, you know, the prototypical you show up, you get your head shaved. My hair never grew back apparently, and. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know you, it's it's you coming
0: back don't worry it'll you come that.
1: and you memorize stupid things and you eat square meals and it's miserable and that's true the summer the first summer was miserable but it's also you're the center of the universe at the US Coast Guard Academy when you're a swab which is what they call plebes at the Naval Academy West Point. Mm-hmm. the basic design of the academies is all based on a model that came out of west Point in the early 1800s by the guy named fair and you know the model is that the juniors train the freshmen it's sort of um everything is taken away from you and then slowly over the course of four years you get your freedoms back and it's a dated model there are elements of it that i think are excellent putting you through a rigorous challenge and then seeing how who sinks and who swims those are those are really helpful things and it brings you together in a really powerful way so um to give you just an example uh yesterday i was texting with five of my classmates all of whom were in my swab summer platoon Mm -hmm. we all we all showed up at the coast guard academy on july 6th of 1989 and they have been lifelong friends, Right. people that I've known since that day when they locked us in the trash room and said, do not come out until you've memorized everybody's names. And you've got 10 minutes, by the way. So that's an amazing thing. And that is one of the incredible and, and rare benefits of going to a place like that. I know every single person from my class and I don't just know their names. I know where they're from. I know them. I know who they are. And then I have these incredible friendships that yeah. are deeper than any other friendships I've ever had. Um, so that's a wonderful thing. And that's something I would never trade, um, aspects of being at the Coast Guard Academy that are difficult. You know, I came out of high school with straight A's and I got there and I got a 2.0 the first semester, a so 2, 2, two one maybe. Mm-hmm. And if you maintain it, if you can't maintain a 2.0, you fail out. And why did I have such bad grades? because there's so many things to distract you from your academics but they're mandatory things that you have to do there's all these military things that you have to do and i really wanted to be good at that but also be a good student and i couldn't do everything and so what you ultimately learn for for both better and the worse is is to triage you learn how to say i am i'm only able to do a certain number of things and so i'm going to choose the things that are the most important and that I can actually get done and do those. And then you're gonna literally blow off all the other things. And as you can imagine, that's a really helpful thing in an emergency, but it's not a helpful thing sometimes when you're working on long-term projects. Right. Um, So to me, the hardest thing about the academy was simply trying to manage the constant expectations at a high level. And I have lots of classmates who I have a class, a friend of mine from high school, who also got into the Coast Guard Academy. He went to a, I went to three high schools, so at his high school, he was the valedictorian, very smart kid, uh, great student athlete, and he got through Coast Guard Academy. And he, he he just simply couldn't, he could not keep his grades up, and he failed out in the spring of his fourth wow. year. And there's lots and lots of that. So yeah. I do think the academy is doing a better job now um of recognizing that attrition in and of itself is not should not be an objective
0: right right.
1: the objective should be to bring the people bring applicants in who know what they're getting into and you understand this is not a cakewalk it's going to be really really difficult but that are qualified to perform in that arena and succeed and i think they're doing a much better job that the attrition rate's been falling um, and I also think the Academy has become much more diverse, which is a great thing. Yeah. Um, in 1989, most everyone looked a lot like me. Right, right. We were about 10% women, and I think maybe a couple African-Americans in my class, and that was it. Yeah. And, and that's not acceptable anymore, and, and it's also not, you know, it's not the right, everybody sort of thinks the same if everybody looks right, the same. Right, so right. There was a lot of homogeneity that was, was was unhelpful so they they've they've done a good job of fixing a lot of that stuff
0: and how long did you serve for
1: so the academy like the other service academies it's it's four years it's a college right i I was given i got a degree in government bachelor of science in government so you sort of have a minor in engineering and then um you're required to serve for five years Mm -hmm, after that commitment to pay back for the, the free school and i think the other academies are identical to that but I ended up serving on active duty after I graduated about eight and a half years and I was reaching that 10 year mark where you sort of need to decide, am I going to stay past 10 and go to 20 for retirement Mm -hmm. or am I going to get out and sort of go on my own way? And for me, again, I had always intended to stay, but that was before I had met my wife and realized that that's more, you know, ultimately that was more important to me to have a family and to be fulfilled and right. i reached a point where i started to be able to sort of predict where i was going to be in 10 years and i didn't really like that mm. i knew i would reached i developed a lot from the time i was commissioned in 1993 until i was I, by that point when i decided to leave i was an instructor at the u.s coast guard academy there was a thing called the leadership development center um, and I was a leadership uh-huh. management instructor, and I really enjoyed teaching. I loved that. I loved working with active duty men and women and cadets. I also taught sailing in the summers, uh, offshore sailing um, to cadets, and I adored it. It was amazing. But at that time, you, you sort of realize if you want to become a senior officer, you have to go to graduate school. But if you go to graduate school through the Coast Guard, you're pretty much in a stay until at least 20. Because the payback for graduate school at that time was three years for every year you go to graduate school. And that was when graduate schools were still two years. Now, we all know they're mostly about a year now. Right. So I decided to to leave. And I, I stayed in the reserves, but I decided to leave. I did a sabbatical program, which meant I could return to two-year sabbatical. And I took the sabbatical to go to graduate school on my own. I, it was nice to have the option to return I didn't really plan to return, but it was nice to have a little parachute to, you know, to return. Uh, and then when I went to graduate school, I met people you know, that connected me to jobs in Washington that were directly in line with what I really wanted to do, which was I didn't want to just go to grad school and then come out and go back to the government as a, as a government civilian. And I totally respect people to do that, but that was not what I wanted to do. I had just been on active duty for all those years and I didn't want to just go be a consultant because I didn't really feel like I had the right experience to do that. So what I really wanted to do was go and find a job at the intersection of business and government and magically, that's (laughs) exactly where I landed. I was at a trade association representing the industry, but but interacting on a daily basis with representatives from government agencies and from, uh, from Congress.
0: Was your grad school an MBA, or was it something different?
1: No, I got a master's in public administration. Public art, administration, okay. Um, and I studied public policy and regulatory strategy and um, negotiations. Got it. So, um, and i you know, I, it's funny. At that time, a lot of my friends were leaving the Coast Guard and getting MBAs, and I sort of tried to convince myself that's what I wanted, but that wasn't where my interests were. I was really fascinated by international relations and public policy and and foreign affairs, and that's what I studied. And it was a, it was a really fulfilling.
0: So it's interesting to me as you're talking about your choices and your path and how you arrived at decisions. And it seems maybe it's the benefit of the rearview mirror as you're talking, it seems like you are someone who instinctively knows what you want to do and then you pursue it. Or you instinctively- That's all just a show. Um, Or that it almost sounds like you know yourself well, right? I think sometimes recognizing where you are and and, and these different places where you've talked about these intersection points and, and thinking about making a move or changing or pivoting from what is traditionally like you've bucked that a couple of times to do something different that was following your own interests your own path or what felt right to you and i'm curious if that's something you even knew was happening while you're doing it is it something that that's been conscious for you or you know i think that's not always common
1: no, and I, I mean, that's a um, it's a great observation. You know, I think if you if you if you if you ask my classmates at the academy and some of my really close friends, they would have said this guy's going to stay in the you field. Yeah, um, I loved any opportunity to be in a leadership position. I loved, it. And it wasn't just because of the limelight. I just loved the opportunity to, go, to, to sort of meet people, interact with people, set a really, really good example. I thought that was really critical. Um, and I just, I really enjoyed that. And, and I, I could, when I stopped having that feeling, when that, when that stopped sort of happening for me in the Coast Guard, I started to say, I wanna do something else. And so when I mm. felt like, all right, I'm an instructor, I enjoyed that, but I'm only gonna do that for another year. What's next? I wanna to go to graduate school. The Coast Guard doesn't wanna send me where I wanna go, which was frustrating um and that was mostly a financial thing they just simply were saying we don't have a lot of money we're going to make you return three years for everyone and you're going to go to a small list of schools um i started to say maybe it's time for me to go mm-hmm. um you know the interesting thing is one of one of my very close closest friends wanted to go be a finance guy and be an investment banker and he was interested in going to mba programs and I, I never wanted to do that. I've never been particularly interested in that stuff. No disrespect to Paul, Rand, who's <laughs> the finance guy. It's just not my interest area. I, right. What what I do when I'm not working I, is that I'm either I'm either working out or I'm reading about history or foreign policy or what's going on in the newspaper. I'm fascinated by public policy and and history, and so I sort of initially tried to tell myself I'm going to go get an MDA that's going to be a good fit for me right but ultimately that's not that wasn't where my interests lie and ultimately I think I ended up at the right place right and I'm so glad I did um because it connected me to people that shared my interests. who then said hey why don't you go talk to this guy in Washington mm-hmm. he'd be a really they don't have any jobs but why don't you just go meet with this person and see if there's a common interest and that's exactly what happened and I think the passion came through and so I guess the message there is don't hide from yourself you know there are lots of things that are interesting to lots of people but there are times in your life where your peers will all sort of land on a common interest that sounds really cool and trendy like getting an MBA is often that way, or getting a law degree is often that way, but it's not a great fit for everybody. And I'm right. so glad. I would have been miserable
0: yeah. if
1: I, had, you know, and either I've... gone and got an MBA and then be- I would not have been a finance guy because that's not my thing. So I would have gotten an MBA and I would have been, you know, a consultant, and I would have been miserable. Um, and instead, I went and studied stuff that fascinated me. And, and then I got to work in public policy right at the intersection of the set of business and government, right where the rubber meets the road. And I got to really get a deep understanding of why we have regulations and how Congress works and how the maritime industry on the commercial side, not the military side works, which was fascinating.
0: Yeah, and I think that the lesson too is. Some of those things you described are well worn paths that have a predictable future. And for you, in terms of some of the choices you've made, it's not as predictable or the outcome or what the end state might look like. And so it's a little bit of risk. It's a little bit of betting on yourself, right, and betting on the fact that you're connecting to the material in a way that means something. And then it's that that in and of itself propels you, which I think people don't often think about, or they, to your point around hiding from it, because they know that this is a more the safe route or the the path that, you know, everybody's doing it, whatever that is in that, you know, well, within you that, that construct. Uh,
1: Teresa, oh, the, some words popped into my head and I don't know where they came from. It probably goes back to Mrs. Wagner in high school or maybe my, my lit class at the Coast Guard Academy, literature class, but I remember reading something in which uh the words deadly inertia were used and Uh and that is the best way to describe the feeling i had that made me decide to leave active duty Mm -hmm. and it's not that i didn't adore the coast guard i love the coast guard to this day um i love i you know it's it's a part of me in a deep way but i felt like i can keep doing this it's not going to be challenging and it's it's highly predictable. I know exactly where I'm gonna be in a decade. And I didn't want that anymore. I just wanted to be in control. And my wife would tell you every so often I have these moments of, oh my God, I'm not in control of my destiny and I need to shake things up and get control. And that's exactly what happened recently. And it wasn't that I wasn't happy in my job, you know, working in the maritime industry. It's just that I knew what I, I, I didn't want to see myself in 10 years turning 60 and, and maybe retiring and say, well, that was it. That's all he did. And yeah, yeah. I would have made a lot more money in the next decade. But I, I just didn't. It wasn't yeah. for me. And I think the experiences I've had over my career where I got to work with young people and influence them. Yeah. For example, I was the head coach of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy men's rugby team for three years. I was an instructor there, but I got to coach these young men. And I can't tell you how frequently when I bump into, I was at a retirement ceremony uh, a few weeks ago and the MC of the retirement ceremony was one of the guys that I coached. (laughs) Yeah. He called me coach and and he remembers that relationship, but the kid has been an absolute success. He's done. He's had a great career and he's had an inspired career. And I think maybe just a little bit of something that maybe I taught him when I was coaching maybe rubbed off. Right. Or maybe some of the things that he learned when he was learning to manage the rugby team because he was our captain helped him become a better Coast Guard officer. And I think that, you know, that just reinforces for me the importance of of coaching and teaching and so that's why I had to get back to it you know the industry can they'll find somebody else if you will to represent them but I don't think everybody's necessarily cut out to to try to influence and lead young people yeah and I think that's something that I've always been comfortable doing and I love doing so
0: on that topic given that you're so passionate about leadership and you've talked about it a lot both in the context of your military experience and then i suspect given how long you were in your second act (laughs) now maybe you're in your third act i'm curious since since it's a passion of yours and uh what what would you consider to be from your experience and from those you've coached and what you've observed and witnessed in in the last maybe decade uh, what are some of the attributes or care, you know, critical success factors, if you will, of good, effective leaders, uh, strong leaders, people that create followership?
1: Well, I, I said this already and, and maybe it's my own OCD coming out, but I struggle to follow someone who doesn't set a good example. Mm-hmm. I look to that. I look to my leaders to do things that they expect me to do and do them well Mm -hmm. and so that's fundamental and i think that that's it's certainly a well-observed leadership trait that the first thing you have to do to be a good leader is to is to is to set an example and physically do the things and i don't mean strength activities i mean um don't just tell your people or your followers what you want them to do but actually show them through your own act, actions and behaviors uh that you're doing those things too so that's the first part of it and i think that's a way to to without saying a word to show the people that you believe in that you're serious and i think that carries a lot of importance uh whether you're in the military or whether you're a teacher or whether you're a coach or whether you're you know anybody a parent engaging with the pta Uh, school board it doesn't matter I think in any of those engagements if you can do that I think that's powerful another thing you know as I got more senior in my career I started to see things that were important as leadership skills that I I didn't pick up on when I was younger and one of them is um, the ability to quickly and nimbly move from A very high-level concept to a sort of implementation level understanding of that issue and to bounce back and forth. A good leader doesn't micromanage, but a good leader knows what the people that are working for that leader need to do to get the job done. And so I saw throughout my career people that couldn't they couldn't stay at the 50,000 or 60,000 foot level. They had to go down to 5,000 feet and then they couldn't go back up. And all that did was result in, in their followers getting angry with them or, or you know using the micromanager yeah. in term. But when I saw leaders who could momentarily sort of pulse down to talk about the particulars and then go back up to provide a strategic direction, I think that's critically important. So that's another you know, thing that I thought was, over the years, really, really critical. And that's something that requires a minimal mind mm-hmm. and it requires the ability to deal with, with uh, uncertainty.
0: Well, and, and we, I, I think what happens, at least in my observations, is that people naturally incline or lean one way. So either you incline to execute and you're someone that executes really well on tasks and on delivering all those tasks or you're someone who leans or is inclined to think strategically big picture visionary and so wherever you're comfortable you end up wanting to stay where you're comfortable and what you're good at and so what i found which i think you're saying it's like this this ability to stretch in both directions Mm -hmm. then helps you become kind of that full service or a holistic leader because you're, and you, and I, I would agree with you. I think that ability to go back and forth kind mixed with your other comments of no task is too small. Uh, right. There's like the ego component of this too, that as you evolve and you become, uh, more of the VIP, right. Then, than what happens, um, to the ego and how does that engage in some of this stuff. But I loved those, observations and i think they're unique to what other people have shared with us on this topic and i think that's great i um you know it's so it's so funny to me like my husband and i get so frustrated with our kids and cleaning our kitchen and cleaning in general uh, and that they just don't do it effectively and 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 we had this conversation that was sort of an aha moment the other day where it's like what if we did it with them you know and we have like a range now of kids of like a senior so <laughs> like we have you know toddlers or even young kids anymore like we've been at this for a while and um and and it's interesting how we just think oh well they've seen us do it so over and over and over again so they should know how to do it yeah no, they've Yet, seen
1: you do it so you should keep doing it that's, that's what they're saying right? yeah
0: exactly <laughs>
1: that's what i was you know
0: saying. versus like
1: you're really good at that we, Mom,
0: keep doing it yeah, excuse me, you're good at it versus we're going to do this together and I'm going to show you what my expectation is and I'm going to show you how I do it and then I'm going to, we're going to do that a couple of times and now you're going to do it and I'm going to watch you do it and then you're going to do it on your own, right? And just taking that example yeah. and it's the same thing I think when it comes to leading people or to um, trying to drive change or, you know, we could go on and on with, with how that analogy I think works but um, it's a little bit of what you're talking about in terms of kind of staying connected to the tactical and then being able to back up from that
1: yeah and you know i think um it's certainly quicker and easier to just say i I know it
0: is it's like that
1: snl computer guy who's just like i got it and he's like types away (laughs) it was an early jimmy fallon i think um yeah but the truth is if you really want to develop someone who can do it on their own you gotta be a little bit more patient and i i'm speaking as if i'm more patient than i am i am inherently impatient (laughs) But I do see the the benefits of trying to help someone learn how to do it right. And and frankly, this goes back to something. When I was at the Coast Guard Academy, there was this book that came out called About Face. And it was written by this guy named Colonel David H. Hackworth. And it's a brilliant book. And and Hack was somewhat of a controversial guy because he he was an Army colonel who commanded several battalions in Vietnam. And he realized that the strategies of counting dead Viet Cong and reporting that up the chain was just resulting in lies going up the chain about the number of dead Viet Cong. People were inflating those numbers. And he came up with some strategies and tactics that were much more effective in counter guerrilla warfare. But he was sort of, one of his mantras was, and you'd go in his units and sort of turn them around, sort of the little parcels of of a Vietnam battalion. Mm -hmm. But he, he always said, that um you, you either learn it right the first time or you spend the rest of your life trying to learn how to do it right and i think he's so right um and i got to actually know him because when i was a cadet i was inspired by him and i wrote him a letter yeah those things not it was actually a letter uh, uh, that's l-e-t-t-e-r is that
0: letter <laughs> right.
1: i literally I, I i wrote to the publisher i had no other way there was no internet yeah and i wrote a letter to the publisher asking that the letter be relayed to dave to the to colonel Hackworth. and out of the blue i was uh, at the coast guard academy we didn't have rooms on our phones we had rooms down and there were like a it was a bank of pay phones something else that you'll have to describe to your listeners right and there were three payphones serving about 130 cadets and the payphone had rung and i was now a third class cadet maybe and, and a, a fourth class cut out. a freshman had to go answer the phone. And they came running up to my room and they said, Mr. Schneider, sir, you know, the phone is ringing. You have a phone call. And I ran down, answered the phone, and it was Colonel Hackworth on the other side.
0: If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at
1: And he he said, hey, Doug, this is Hack, I really loved your note, I want to come out and speak. Wow. We had him come out and speak to the Coast Guard Academy, it was amazing, it was amazing, to the whole Corps, and we had him back when I was there as a faculty member. But I think some of what he said is, it just rings true, and it's utterly simple, but it makes sense, and think about in your own lives, things that you didn't get right, you didn't learn right initially because of one reason or another, and then you struggled to, correct it your whole life
0: so yeah um so that's another good example awesome all right i just i know we're we're running here uh, close to time so I, a couple more questions on um one i feel like i have to ask because i think so many people that are transitioning i in fact i'm working with a lot of people right now from a coaching perspective that are sort of quasi-government or or military transitioning to private sector and that yeah. transition and so maybe just a couple of thoughts there on on how that i mean it, you transitioned at a time that you know almost 10 years in that's a little bit different than 25 year career sort of retiring but i think some of the the tenets are probably the same in terms of what that shock was like of, of what, how that one system works compared to the commercial private system maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then just two more questions after
1: that when i was coming out of graduate school we were in we were in a recession um and i knew what i didn't want to do but and i had a sense of what i wanted to do but um you know the military or or a government agency that you've been with for a long time sort of feels like a security blanket right it's not it's not without its its downsides, but it still provides a sense of security in terms of, of a reliable job and a reliable source of income. And when you decide to leave that, it's scary. right. And I had, you know I thought maybe the best way for me to do this would be to go to graduate school and pick up some new skills. But I was bound to get a job. And I um, first had to sort of figure out what it was that I wanted to do. And I, you know, I, I, re- I recall having done literally what color is your parachute? Yeah, that book, um, yeah, which was fun. I didn't end up doing that, but guess what? It told me to do
0: it be a told teacher. Me to
1: be a sailing instructor. I'm not joking. Oh
0: my god! Sailing
1: instructor. Uh huh. I'm not too far off. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting closer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and you did. You were a sailing instructor, right? I was a so, sailing instructor.
1: So. So that's right. But that. Um, so, but I think what I maybe got out of that process of leaving and now i've left the government to go to the private sector and i've now left the private sector to go into teaching um and i would say what i've learned through both of those not easy transitions is that um number one is it's about people it is about relationships fundamentally you can go through the process of of submitting your resume to an unknown party on the other end of a website but realistically human beings want to make human connections with people and that's how they want to hire and that's exactly how i got hired coming out of grad school and that's frankly how i got hired going to oakton high school i mean it's crazy how this worked out but I applied to Fairfax County. I was just one of thousands of applicants to Fairfax County public schools. I feel like my resume is unique, but guess what? There's a lot of people like me in this area. Right. And um, Oakton High School is a high school where a classmate of mine from the Educate the 8 program or the Becoming a Teacher program, the Curse Richard program, she was teaching there. And I reached out in the fall after I didn't decided to pursue getting hired because of COVID and I just did an informational interview with her. I just called her and I said, Hey, I'd love to pick your brain about how you enjoy the school you're at or what it was like getting hired. And we talked and after talking with her, I got two really great things from that. One, I got a sense of, of the culture of that school, which is a real thing. Yeah. And two, I got, she got a sense of my interest and my right. capability because we didn't really know each other that well. So she went back to Oakton and started talking to her boss about me. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at Oakton and then I decided I really wanted to apply to Oakton. And then when I applied to Fairfax County Public Schools, um, they invited me for an early hire interview, um, which is strictly a review of your of your resume and your qualifications. And then they'll select people for that and then and then they'll offer certain people. The assistant principal that was assigned to do that interview on behalf of the county was from Oakton, mm-hmm. and that was just pure luck, right? But of course, I wasn't going to not mention that, I, so I opened <laughs> the interview with Could we? Yeah, this is a crazy coincidence, but my colleague and, and friend um, from Educate BA is at your school, and I interviewed her last fall, and I learned a lot about your school, and I really think it's a great fit. I mean, that's a wonderful way to make a connection with somebody. And I now know after the interview, he walked down the hall to the assistant principal for social studies and said, you got to hire this guy. And a week later, I was hired. So I think that that's a great example. That's exactly what happened when I was coming out of graduate school. And I sent resumes to everybody and their brother, and I cold called everybody. And I had boundless energy to do that. But what ultimately got me a job that I liked was... A friend saying, "Hey, I have a common friend in Washington. I'd be happy to make a call and see if you know he's available for you to stop by and just introduce yourself." And you know, I'm an idiot. I showed up at this office in Washington, D.C., wearing uh, a polo shirt and shorts. And a week later, the guy said, "We want you to come down and, and uh, interview formally for a job." Uh, and maybe the polo shirt and shorts was the right call. I don't know, but. <laughs> I, I had no sense that maybe this could turn into something, because he was. I was told they weren't hiring, and two weeks later I was on. You know, would you hiring.
0: would you say that the systems operate very differently in terms of how you succeed, how you perform, what's expected of you? Would you say that, um, like a military or sort of quasi-government life, right? or career, and then and then in terms of moving into private. Um, Would you say, was there a big shift there?
1: Um, I think that the biggest thing I noticed that was different is that in the military, you're sort of, and this was told to me when I was a fairly young officer or maybe even a cadet, and I believed it to be true and I think it remains true, is that you're sort of in the business of making sure that your boss doesn't get surprised and you're in the business of making sure that you try to manage anything that can create a problem up the chain or down the chain, but you try to manage anything and you really try to control. You try to exert control on all kinds of things that you really can't control realistically. And in the military, that's sort of, you try to command things that maybe, um, and when I got into the private sector, my boss who is a very sage man and a a very um, great leader and a good friend he pulled me aside and he said listen i know the culture that you came from but listen i want you not to try to control congress or those particular policy issues that we're working on in congress because you can't control them i want you to be aware of what's happening i want you to create relationships that will help us be in a position to influence those things but you're not gonna control that. You can't, no one controls that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really, really smart advice. And I've had conversations with colleagues of mine who remained in the Coast Guard that were under the, you know, sort of under the gun to, to, to control stuff. Uh, and in fact, that was a conversation I had with the guy that was my successor, who we hired from the Coast Guard. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he he sort of saw that Plain as day once we discussed it, but I think that's the biggest thing that I sort of noticed. Yeah. Don't try to control things you can't control. Try to be an influencer. Try to establish relationships that put you in a position where you can have a positive outcome, um, and, and that's what I try to do.
0: Yeah, on the relationship front. So uh, you know, I'm not sure how much Paul shared with you, just in terms about. Um, my passion and emphasis on soft skills development uh for people really at any stage of their career in terms of my hr background and what i've seen is that people are um, being blocked or they're really not progressing because of their what i characterize as soft skills acumen which is really communication influencing collaboration that kind of stuff i'm curious for you you've talked a lot about relationships and networking so that might be one but i'm curious for you if you had to pick one or two soft skills that you thought were critical to the success of of people you've seen in your different careers i mean you're moving into the teaching space but what what would you say are are critical or really important that people strengthen and develop
1: i'm going to start with something i'm not very good at which is listening (laughs) um but i can't yeah i would say that as i as i got as I progressed in my career and again at the at the World Shipping Council where I was at a you know a Maritime Trade Association that represented the entire global shipping industry for container ships which is massive yeah we were in the in the business of listening to our members taking input from them or soliciting input from them on particular policy issues and then deciding what were reasonable policy objectives and then working with executive branch agencies or members of, of congress and their staffs to try to execute that and it flowed the other direction proposals would come up from congress or from uh, from customs and border protection the coast guard epa and a number of other agencies that regulate shipping that would come through us and we would then have to translate that to our members so that required Um, us being in a position of really understanding what either the policymakers' objectives were or what our members' interests and objectives were. And if you don't listen to them, you're not gonna get there. And it was really amazing to see. I remember when I first started doing that, and I thought, you know, why would these companies trust us to do this on their behalf? Um, and, And ultimately it was because we took the time to learn what their concerns were yeah. and have them explain, make us an expert on those particular issues. So we could then speak on their behalf before the United States government or before the European Union or before the international American organization. So I think listening uh, and digesting complex issues is critically important. And you know, somebody uh, told me once that there's nothing that you can't convert into three bullet points. And I think that's basically <laughs> true. I hate complexity for the sake of it. And with all due respect to consultants, sometimes consultants like to, to add complexity because it will extend their number of available hours. And I get that, but the truth is, we often try to make things more complex than they are because it makes us feel better about ourselves or our intelligence. Right. The truth is I think so many things, even complex issues, can be boiled down into simple pieces, parts that can then be understood. Um, by a larger audience, so that's the first one, um, and I think the second one is uh, the power of of communicating clearly, whether it's through negotiations in person or or digesting something and giving a short elevator pitch. Right. Being able to on your feet give an extemporaneous and honest pitch about a particular issue. is so so important Um, whether that's you standing up in front of 200 reservists that work for you or whether that's you engaging with a member of Congress for the 10 minutes or whether that's you talking to a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company you need to be able to do that right If you can't do that then there are certain things you should not be doing especially I think skills and figuring out how do you boil something down and then communicate very quickly what your concerns are uh, to somebody who doesn't have time for you
0: right especially when you're point. passionate about it and you feel strongly about something and you're seeking to influence or or get buy-in right that you don't have very much time to do that yeah. for sure yeah. all right and this is the last question uh, which you've already given a lot of advice, so I don't know. Um, you, you may be um, restating, but one of the things that we often ask our, our guests is just around, you know, advice that you would give to young Doug right now that you've been through this iteration of three different careers. And I think what I like about this question is is I, we had someone more of a friend, not somebody I interviewed once say, you know I wouldn't do anything differently because things happen as they're supposed to. Which I do believe that. At the same time, I think that if I, you know, if you look back and there's periods of life or periods where maybe things were more difficult on Doug than they needed to be, you know, what what could you say that would make the path maybe a little bit easier or something that um, has enlightened you along the way that you wished you had known, uh, you know, high school, college, right? That that time frame maybe.
1: I'll offer a couple of quick thoughts. Okay. Number one, it turns out that where you, I mean, I went to a service academy that actually had a very big impact on my life, Yeah. but I generally believe that all of the time and energy I spent when I was in high school worrying about perception about where I went to school was wasted. It. It's not necessary. Um, That's good. And I think it has much more to do with what you put into it, and and we tell our kids this, it's the effort you put in it doesn't matter if you go to um you know a ridiculous ivy league school or or a community college if you put the effort into it um you're going to get something positive out of it so i really believe that but i think that 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 is an important point that fits into sort of any of your career decisions so um you know there's so many different things I could have done with my life so far, and it's not over yet. But I'm excited to do this next thing. And I'm, you know, I was talking to my wife there recently about, you know, sort of if you could go back and redo it. We, we've already decided that we can figure out some kind of weird path that had I not gone to the Coast Guard Academy, I was going to go to Michigan, and my wife was going to go to Notre Dame, and we would have met at the, the Notre Dame Michigan football game, <laughs> and that's when we would have. I love you know, it. Yeah. Even though I hate Michigan, I'm an Ohio State fan. <laughs> but it was a better school. So I had to go to Michigan, right? It's not really a better school, but but, you know, I think what's a wonderful thing is following the things that make you, that pique your Mm interests, that are fascinating to you. You know, I have had a life list for a very, very long time. And when I went to graduate school during the opening week, this wonderful woman named Sue Williamson, who was the the, uh, MPA the Masters of Public Administration Director, who sadly died of cancer a few years later, sue said have a life list and she talked about some of the things she gave some examples of it and i'm sitting there in the crowd listening and i'm saying i've got a life list i've got a life list so actually after that i wrote it down but i think having interesting things that you want to do with your life because our lives are fleeting yeah uh is is a way to try to achieve some of those things and you're not going to get them all done and things are going to jump in the way they're going to stop you from doing some of them but even if you get some of the things done that you said you wanted to do you'll feel fulfilled yeah. you know i want to hike the appalachian trail i haven't done it yet i may never do it but it's on my list still yeah i wanted to learn to fly paul ranning helped me sort of you know ultimately jump through and do that goal but i did it i didn't just learn to fly i got my private flight. you know private pilot license. awesome really cool um you know there's a there's a lot of different things that you can put on your list that's a good fit um, my wife knows I'm going to sail across the Atlantic Ocean someday. She's not going to be with me, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> but maybe um, that's maybe Paul will. <laughs> I think Paul, Paul will actually start um, planning to do that. But yeah, I really think um, dreaming big and, yeah. and 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 you don't have to tell anybody about what those things are, but just do it. Yeah. Um. And and then I think don't be afraid to make a course change when you feel like you're reaching the point of deadly inertia. You know, yeah. and You know, we all know when we reach that point and make a course change. Life is so short. And, I mean, there's not much to lose by trying something new, but when you do make those changes, don't jump out of them too quickly. Right? Right. If we make yeah. A change and then we're very quick to say we made a mistake and then we go back. No, no, no. Make the change. Right. Give it a year minimum and then reassess. That's right. That's sort of my.
0: Yeah this has been a joy you're all the things and more that paul said you would be so thank you for your time you're very and, sweet.
1: and paul is a filthy liar but <laughs> <laughs> no he's a great friend and, and so yeah. I really
0: no this is very been... much
1: admire and uh, i've heard tremendous things about both of you and i appreciate the time uh, uh, i think what you're doing with this podcast is wonderful
0: oh thank you it's it was great and i i learned a lot and i think it's really cool the the path that you've taken, and we'll absolutely have to have you on again, maybe at the end of the year, and and hear how your first full year, I yeah. Like
1: I, year of I think
0: that would be awesome. One thing
1: I will not have lost any hair.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you, Doug. Such a great conversation. I loved your comments about transitioning from your time in the military to the private sector and your tips on listening and the power of communicating clearly and having that elevator pitch and ready to go. We wish you the best in your third act as a high school history teacher, and we can't wait to check in with you again and hear how it's going. Thank you, Missy, for producing this episode, and thank you to our Relatable community and listeners. We're so thankful for your support and listenership. If you get a moment, please subscribe to the Relatable podcast. Rate us and leave comments. We can be found on your favorite listening platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.